don't have to answer this question out loud, but I'm just curious, do you remember when the last time was that someone called you stupid? Not like in the, not like in the, not like in the silly, funny way, like, oh, you're, that's so dumb, you're so stupid, but like they really meant it. Like, you are stupid. You're a fool, you're a moron. They really meant it. I don't know if you've ever had maybe a cruel boss who said that or a loving, doting spouse who has said that. Um, I, I think for me, probably the last time was when I was playing football. There are many things that are said on a football field that I would never repeat in church. And I've heard my fair share. And uh, to my shame, I've said some of my fair share. But there is forgiveness in the Lord. Uh, you know, when someone calls us names like that, when someone calls you stupid, someone calls you a moron, an idiot, a fool, and they mean it, uh, we don't typically associate that with godly character, right? You usually, someone comes up and calls you an idiot, a moron, a fool, and we're not like, man, that guy's godly. <laughs> and that's because usually it's not godly to say that. It's not. It's, most of the time we are losing our temper, losing control of our emotions. Maybe we're even in the wrong. It's very rarely is it godly to call someone stupid. But what we're going to see as we continue through the book of Galatians, that believe it or not, there is a time and place for it. There actually is a time and place where godly men and women call people stupid. They call people foolish, and we see that because this is Paul's very example. So if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 3. We are going to continue working through the book. And I'm going to... Galatians chapter 3, Paul has finally finished. We've been working through this book. Paul has finally finished uh, his retelling his rebuke of Peter. So Galatians chapter 3 begins, now Paul is refixing his address to the Galatians as a whole. He is now speaking to the Galatians again. He's no longer telling his story. This is now directly to the Galatians. And he begins in chapter 3, verses 1, and we will read through 6. If you would please follow along, for these are the very words of God. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? So Paul begins, you, oh, foolish Galatians. And he goes on to say that again. He tells them once again in verse 2, forgive me, verse 3, are you so foolish? Now, the Bible likes this word fool, you see the word fool throughout the scriptures, and, and the, the normally the Greek word that's used is where we actually get our English word moron from, but there's actually a different word here. You know, so the Bible says things like, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says things like, the cross is foolishness to the world. The gospel is folly to the world. But this is a different word that's used here, and it's a word that is very much an attack on their intellect. This is a word that goes directly to their thought processes. He is attacking their brains. 
He is telling them, oh, you are not thinking logically. You're not using your heads here. And if you were to do a Greek word study, some of the translations would say a, a decent English translation that we could put into that text would be stupid. Oh, foolish Galatians. What we have been seeing all throughout this letter, we began in chapter 1, we've been working our way through, is we have seen the Galatian people who have been deceived by false teachers, and they are now believing a new gospel, a different religion altogether than the one Paul proclaimed to them. So Paul now is holding back no punches. And he interprets their transition as stupidity. You are fools. You foolish, foolish people. And so here's essentially what we're going to learn today. Depending on your preference, we're going to learn either how not to be or how to be a religious fool. So if you woke up this morning and just decided, you know, I really feel like being foolish today. I, I want to be a fool today. Then you came to the right place. Because I'm going to teach you from Paul how you can become the biggest religious fool in the city of Roswell. So here's the first step. We have a four-step plan to becoming a religious moron. And here's step number one towards becoming a fool. Gullibility. Lack all discernment. Be highly gullible and just accept anyone who comes in the name of the Lord, anyone who comes claiming to believe in Jesus, just accept them as brothers and sisters and whatever their message is, it's, it's probably consistent with your religion. Right? Because that's essentially what happened. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul sees their transition... Their, their, their newfound gospel, which he says in, in, in chapter 1, is really shouldn't be called a gospel at all. It's a false gospel. This new false gospel, he says, uh, sort of, again, to, to really drive the dagger in after the, the insult, the only way I can comprehend someone actually doing what you just did is that you must be under some kind of spell. I mean, a logical, thinking, sober-minded person doesn't do what you guys have done. Someone must have put you under a spell. Maybe you're demonically possessed. I don't know. He's really, like I said, he's not holding back any punches here. You're, you've been bewitched. Who has bewitched you? What on earth? What kind of mystical, magical, demonic power could cause your brains to move in this direction? Who has bewitched you? And then here's where the key comes in for this concept of gullibility. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So here's a couple things we need to understand about verses 1. The Galatian people have shown a great gullibility. And the reason Paul holds them so accountable is for two reasons. One is implicit and one is explicit. The implicit reason is because the issue of the book of Galatians is a foundation. It's a cornerstone of Christian religion. The issue of justification is so part of the gospel that Paul essentially refers to justification as the gospel throughout the letter. So here's what I want us to understand. The Galatians did not wander from some peripheral doctrine. They didn't wander in, from just their, you know, some side doctrine that still matters. All theology matters. But we know that there's sort of a triage of theology in Christian life. Everyone in this room probably has some theological difference somewhere. We don't kick each other out of church and, and, and ban people from the communion table. 
because we have some, so there are some theological disagreements that we accept because we realize that these are not foundational to the faith. But there are some doctrines that are so foundational to the faith, if you get this wrong, you're no longer even a Christian. The the Galatians did not change their end times view. This was not a change on the mode of baptism. They changed gospels. This is a new Jesus. This is a new religion. This is so foundational that that's why Paul says this is utter gullibility. Because we know that Peter himself says there are some things in Scripture that are hard to to understand. Believing something wrong about the Bible, about the Christian faith, does not make you gullible. I guarantee I probably have thoughts in my head about God, about the Bible that are wrong. Someone told me an argument, I read it, I believed it, I've been convinced of it, but maybe there's someone smarter out there who could change my mind. I'm wrong about something in my head, and I'd be willing to bet that you are probably wrong about something in your head right now too. So simply being convinced of something and it turns out not to be true is not the kind of gullibility that Paul is addressing here. There are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. There are some things that are hard to wrestle with, and so sometimes we get some doctrines wrong. But they have not fall, they have not failed to believe a difficult, peripheral, hard to understand doctrine. They have lost a very foundational piece of the Christian faith. And so it is on that basis that he says, to get that wrong is just foolishness. That's the implicit reason because we see that Paul all throughout the letter is considering justification so vital to the Christian faith and to the understanding, a right understanding of the gospel. But here's the explicit reason that he holds them so accountable for their gullibility. Look again at verse 1. After he calls them foolish and asked who has bewitched you, recognizing that false teachers have come in and, and changed their minds on this. And he says this, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's what's so amazing about that. We know historically the data, we know that none of these Galatian people were present at the crucifixion. Paul is not writing to eyewitnesses of Jesus' crucifixion. But doesn't that sound like what he's saying? Here's what Paul is saying. That word publicly displayed. Paul is referencing what we have seen in chapters 1 and 2, that he is the one who came and and preached the gospel to these people and planted these churches. He is the one who labored over them and preached to them and taught them. And Paul is speaking metaphorically here, and he's saying, I explained the gospel to you so clearly, and I explained it to you so well that it's as if you were present when it happened. This word for publicly displayed, I don't know what your translations read, it was a Greek word that in the secular literature is used most often to describe an advertising billboard. It's a, a billboard that was set up to advertise a new business, or sometimes it was even used when a new painting was being rolled out in a museum and studied. Paul's point here is this, through my preaching, I painted a clear, beautiful picture of the gospel for you. Through my preaching, I publicly displayed the truth of the gospel in clarity. I, I held the gospel on a billboard and you studied it like a painting at a museum. And yet here you are, not long after I've left, and you have found another painting to marvel at. The reason he holds them so accountable is because he was very clear with them. In other words, the Galatians have not just fallen away from a doctrine that 
they, you know, Paul just kind of said in passing once. He, he made a quick reference in passing, and then he left, and now they're confused on that little thing he said. And he, oh, okay, well, here's what I meant by that. No, Paul said, this was the heart and soul of my message. You are witnesses of the death of Christ because I so perfectly portrayed the gospel to you, and yet you have still heard some other gospel and said, yeah, they're basically the same. This is the kind of gullibility he's talking about. The Galatians were not the only ones prone to this. Keep your marker here, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn back just one book to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. Beginning in verse 1, he says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul begins by recognizing, just like in Galatia, the Corinthian churches are his. These are the people that he preached to. These are the people that he brought the gospel to. He planted their churches. And so he says metaphorically, it's as if I was the officiant at your wedding with Christ. I am the one who joined you to Christ. And so because of that, because I am the one who presented you to Christ, I have this godly jealousy for you. I don't want you to cheat on your new husband. So I have this jealousy for you. And then verse 3 but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul sensed in the Corinthian people a gullibility. The Corinthians, like the Galatians, were people, someone could come up to them and say, hey, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the gospel, I've received the Spirit, and they'll just accept them, no questions asked. You realize that Mormons believe in Jesus, right? Mormons will come to your door and they will knock on your door and they say, we are here to tell you about Jesus. We want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we know it's true? Because the Spirit has testified in our hearts. So the Mormons believe in Jesus, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit. But they don't. Jehovah's Witnesses will use this language. They will just accept anyone who sounds remotely Christian. And so here come the Galatian Judaizers. The Judaizers in Galatia have told, yeah, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Spirit, we're not asking you to do that, we're just asking you to change one little thing. Justification by faith is not quite true, you need works as well. Just a slight little tweak, right? They still believe in Jesus, they still believe in the Spirit, they still believe there's only one God. They're not so different. Yet Paul told us in chapter 1 that they're false brothers with a false gospel. Just like in Corinth, you can go back to Galatians, the Galatians have merely listened to somebody who claims Christ, who claims the gospel, who claims the Spirit, without having the discernment to realize this is not the message Paul taught us. That Paul says, I so clearly gave to you. So if you woke up desiring to be a fool this morning, 
Just be gullible. Just lack all discernment. Just be, you, you want to know where we really see this today is what we call the ecumenical movement, our ecumenism, which is where we just, we're just going to join hands with any religious group and, and just be their friends and do ministry with them. And all of our differences, we'll just consider them small. And sometimes they are small. But a lot of times they're not. And we need the discernment to know the difference between a small theological issue and a big theological issue. And Paul expected the Galatians to have that, but they lacked that discernment. They considered this a small minor change, but Paul considered this a monumental change. They were gullible. The second way that they demonstrated foolishness, the second step in our path towards foolishness, is inconsistency. Their, theologi- their, 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 their theological persuasions were inconsistent. Look at what Paul says in verse 2 through 3. Let me ask you only this. So he kind of puts them on trial here. Let me ask you this. Answer me this. Riddle me this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he asked them this rhetorical question, right? What's a rhetorical question? It's a question where the answer is implied. He's not, he's not really asking them. They all know the answer to this. And he says... The Spirit of God fell upon you. The Spirit of God came upon you. We all know that. We all saw it. I I saw the miracles among you. I saw you be changed. We, We all saw the Spirit. So here's my question. What caused the Spirit to dwell you? And this is a good reminder for all of us. Every one of us is born without the Spirit of God in our lives. And then at some point, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is now dwelling in you. He's among you. He's with you. So what's the bridge? What what, what connects that chasm? What crosses that chasm? And Paul implies they all know it was faith. Everyone in the, they recognize it. He's appealing to their own spiritual experience. He's making an argument from their experience. He says, remember, when did the Holy Spirit fill you? And they all know is when I believed. I believed in Christ and he filled me. I didn't have to obey the law to a certain degree. I didn't have to go through some special hoop jumping process. I trusted in Christ and he gave me his spirit. And they all agree on that. And so Paul says, so how does it follow? He says, again, are you so foolish? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul says this is so inconsistent. If the Spirit was willing to indwell you before you obeyed the law, why do you think he's only going to continue to indwell you if you obey the law? The Spirit doesn't come upon us because we're so great, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't look down and say, Wow, that guy is amazing. Whew, he knows how to follow the law. Wow, that is a law keeper. I would be honored to be dwelling in that person. I hope he lets me in. I hope he opens his heart to me because, man, he is quite the law follower and I want to be a part of that. No, the Holy Spirit comes upon sinners, People who have not fallen on the law, but have thrown themselves on Jesus Christ. If, if the Holy Spirit fell upon us because of law keeping, then I have to ask this question. Why do we even need him? Why do I need the Spirit? Apparently, I was doing just fine without him. I was obeying the law. I was justified with God. I was earning my salvation by my obedience. So what do I need the Spirit for? I'm doing just fine without him. No, Paul knows you did not earn the Spirit. You needed the Spirit, and He came upon you because you were helpless. And so what sense does it make to say, okay, yeah, the Spirit came upon me. He started my Christian faith by by my faith. My Christian life began by faith alone, but I've got to earn it now. 
Now that it's begun by faith, it needs to be completed by works. Now again, we talked last week, works are a part of the Christian life, but Paul is focused here specifically on justification and making ourselves right with God. And Paul is saying it makes no sense to say, I was originally made right with God, evidenced by the Spirit, by faith, but now I have to be made right with God by my works. That's a logical inconsistency. Turn with me, if you will, just briefly to the book of Ephesians. So turn forward just one book this time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Oh, forgive me, let's begin in verse 13. Speaking of Christ, it says this in verse 13, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So that's all. You hear the gospel and you believe. And when you do that, when you hear the word and believe in him, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal. He seals us. He marks us when we believe. What does that mean? Well, he says in verse 14, the Spirit is also the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He, the Spirit is referred to here as a seal and a guarantee. 2 Corinthians uses that language of a guarantee as well. A more literal translation would say a down payment. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment to believers. It's God saying, listen, here's a little bit of what's to come. The Spirit is the promise. That's what a, I know there's lots of reasons for a down payment in our day and age. But one of the many reasons is it's proof, it's evidence that you can make your payments. The Holy Spirit is given to you as God's proof, his guarantee, his pledge, his down payment that you can trust that what I've promised to give you, your inheritance, this Spirit is my promise, you will receive it. But he's also said to be a seal. And a seal in the first century was sort of your marking. It's how you would seal your letters. It's like a wax seal so you, you know who this came from. This is important especially for kings. Right? How do you know the difference between a fraudulent copy, an edict from a king, and a legitimate one? Well, the legitimate one would have the king's seal. So the seal essentially says, this is mine. This belongs to me. This is truly from me. So when you are filled with the Spirit, that's God's way of saying, you're mine now. You belong to me now. And, and, and the Spirit is my seal, and he's my pledge of what I have to promise you. So we have to see the close relationship that the indwelling of the Spirit and justification have. The Spirit is essentially the evidence that we've been justified. And, and this, by the way, you can read through the book of Acts. We won't go through all the places. But this is a common argument of the apostles in the book of Acts. We see on more than one occasion, the Jews are standoffish to the Gentiles, saying, I don't know if they've been saved yet. I don't, they haven't obeyed Moses' law. They haven't been circumcised. I don't know if they're part of the family of God yet. And what did the apostles so often appeal to to refute that? They've been filled with the Spirit just like we have. The Spirit is proof of my justification. It's, it's proof that I have been made right with God. So as we go back here, Paul is not just randomly bringing the Spirit into this. He knows the unique relationship the Spirit has to our justification. So when he says, 
were you begun by the Spirit? He's still talking about justification. The Spirit came upon you, and you've been made right with God, and you agree that that originally didn't happen by works. So why do you think it now is about works? This is logically inconsistent. If the Spirit started you by faith, He's going to complete you by faith. If your justification began with faith, it's going to end by faith. We don't get to create, in other words, what I think many religions today have, some kind of halfsies. Your initial justification is by faith, but your final justification is by works. You'll read in some religious writings. Or you're half justified at faith, and then you complete your justification by works. That's the kind of inconsistency that Paul is refuting. No, you were fully justified by faith, so you're going to be fully justified by faith. There's no half justification, fixed justification, final justification, growth in justification. No, by faith, you've been justified, and your spirit is proof of that. It's inconsistent to create kind of two kinds of justification, one by faith and one by works. No, the Spirit began by faith. He will complete by faith. Paul calls them to logical, theological consistency. So if you're interested in being a fool this morning, just believe contradictory doctrines. Just believe doctrines that don't fit together and believe them. That's what religious fools do. But we go into a third one, and this one is kind of tough, and I didn't have a great word for it. We, we talked about gullibility. We talked about inconsistency. But this one I'm going to call spiritual wastefulness. Fools are wasteful. They waste good and precious things. And what am I talking about specifically? Look at verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, the reason this is difficult is because the word suffer, the, the ESV renders this suffer, the word can also be used for just general experiences. So sometimes this word is to talk about suffering, and sometimes this word is used to talk about just general experience, just in the enduring of life. And the context usually determines that, and it's, it's kind of difficult because the context here is, sort of seems to be talking about positive spiritual ex experiences. Um, but what's fascinating, though, is that this word suffer, even though it can meet experience, if it means experiences here, it would be the only time in apostolic literature it ever does. So every other time it's clear they're talking about actual suffering. So, so people go both ways on this. But I think Paul's talking about actual religious suffering. Although he might, I don't see why he can't have maybe both in mind. But here's what verse 4 is saying. Paul is recognizing that the Galatian Christians have already experienced so much and likely a lot of persecution. Their faith in Christ has not made life easier for them. So sorry prosperity gospel, it doesn't work that way. You don't just come to Christ and then your life gets better. Sometimes it gets outrageously more difficult. They have already, because of their faith, suffered and endured so many things. And so Paul says, what sense does it make? You've already suffered and sacrificed this much and now you're just going to throw it away? That's wastefulness. This was the theme throughout all of Paul's ministry. We saw in the pastoral epistles, this idea of finishing the race. Completing the task before us. Paul himself was a man whose life was filled with sufferings. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was persecuted. He was eventually martyred. And Paul's point in the pastoral epistles was, what good, what sense would it make to endure all that suffering just to fall away and go to a religion that's going to send me to hell at the end of my life? Well, you could have just gone there right away and at least avoided that life of suffering. Paul is saying, it's wasteful. You've experienced so many things, likely suffering, but maybe he's talking both. 
Because he says later on in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you? So he's probably talking to some degree both. You have seen the power of God in your midst. You've seen him work miracles in the church. You've seen the kingdom of God miraculously expand. You're enduring sufferings. And now you want to just go back to the old system. You just want to get rid of all of that and go back to the old way of earn your righteousness through law keeping. In other words, Paul is mocking them here for not counting the cost. He is mocking anyone who would not finish the race. Keep your marker here and turn to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of your New Testament, so going back just a little ways. Look at Luke chapter 14. This is one of Jesus' most famous, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but a well-known parable of Jesus. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 28. Jesus has just got done with that difficult saying of you need to prepare to hate your father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters if you want to follow me, that if you're not willing to bear your own cross, you cannot come after me. And then he he expresses that by way of parable in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. They didn't count the cost. The Galatians have experienced and suffered all these things, and now they just want to throw it away. They want to go back. They want to abandon it. Paul says that that is analogous to starting a building and not being able to complete it, and then everyone drives down the road, and they see that construction project that you started that you weren't able to finish, and they laugh at you. If you want to be a fool, just live a long Christian life and then just throw it all away. Throw all that suffering, all that experience, just throw it away and leave your building unfinished. It's wasteful. Christian or religious fools waste their Christian life by not finishing what they started. If you turn back to Galatians now, we will move on to our last point. So we've talked about gullibility We've talked about inconsistency. We've talked about wastefulness. And now we're going to conclude with this, maybe the the primary one of all of them. Religious fools are highly self-righteous. If you want to be a fool, just be self-righteous. Just think way more of yourself than you really have room to think. That's one of the key principles of being foolish. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. 5 is sort of a summary of all that he said up to this point. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? But then he connects this in verse 6 to something so important. Just as. So he puts Abraham into the faith category, not in the works category. So he says, God either does things by works in your life or he does things the way he did things in Abraham's life, which is the faith category. So Paul puts Abraham in the faith category and he says, pick a road. You can go down works, you can go down that road, or you can do what Abraham did and go down the road of faith, right? Does God work miracles among you, give you the spirit by by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, verse 6 is extremely important, and so next week we're going to dedicate the sermon to fully understanding that. So there's a lot to unpack there, but all I want us to scratch the surface with in verse 6 is simply this. What's the argument Paul is utilizing here? He's trying to connect his gospel to Abraham, and he's trying to let these people know that if you listen to the Judaizers, if you listen to false teachers, just know you are not in Abraham's camp. Abraham would not agree with this. Now, why would Paul do that? It's brilliant. Not just because it's true, but it's really, it's a powerful argument. Because the specific law, the laws that the false teachers in Galatia are trying to get the believers to, to, uh, to think, these are the laws that I need to achieve in order to be justified, was the Mosaic law. That was Moses' law. That was Moses' covenant. So what they have done is they have, uh, they have, what they've done is they've pitted Paul against Moses. They said, listen, this Paul guy, his gospel, he's coming here and he's just thrown Moses out. What happened to Moses? We just get rid of Moses' law, it just doesn't even matter anymore? No, if you want to be a friend of God, don't you want to be a friend of Moses? Don't you want to do what Moses had his people do? So Paul says, I'll do you one better. He doesn't agree that he's against Moses, but he says, I'll do you one better. I will link my gospel, not to Moses, who had his own covenant, but to a greater covenant than the Mosaic covenant. Because you see, the covenant that was given to Abraham is a huge covenant that actually encompasses all the other covenants. The Mosaic covenant was a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic. And the new covenant itself is the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic. Abraham's covenant that he would be the father of a promised seed who would bless the nations is what we have in the gospel, in the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. It is the covenant, that, you know, the Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all. It's the, it's the covenant that rules them all, so to speak. And Paul says, that's the covenant I'm going to appeal to, and I'm going to appeal to Abraham. And guess what Abraham never did? He never obeyed Moses' law. Why? It didn't exist for hundreds of years. He said, why are you making a salvation doctrine off obedience to a temporary law that is not eternal and doesn't even have any, an everlasting consequence? It was a temporary law. Why not go back to the original covenant with Abraham? I want to be justified the same way Abraham was justified. How was Abraham justified? By works, by obedience, by Moses, by believing. He says, you've got two options. You can do the Judaizer's way or you can do the Abrahamic way. What we see here is this beautiful connection of God's plan of redemption and how it spreads through the covenants. We know that obviously there were many changes. Progressive revelation and things change. We're not saying everything has always been exactly as it is. But in God's plan of redemption, we see one consistency that cuts through all of them and that is justification by faith apart from works. We want to be justified just like Abraham was, just like David was, just like Moses was. I want the same salvation as them. And Paul says they were not justified by works. Abraham was justified by faith. So whose team do you want to be on? The Judaizers or Abraham's? And so here's why I, I get to this point about being self-righteous. Because the Judaizers and the Galatians, they probably don't recognize that they've done this. They, they're probably not thinking this. But here's what they've actually done with their new gospel of justification by works of the law. They've essentially said, I can do what Abraham was unable to do. How 
is Abraham saved? Not by works, by faith. I'll be saved by works. I'll do it. I can do what Abraham failed to do. The arrogance. As a matter of fact, you don't have to turn there, but a few weeks ago when we were preaching from the parking lot, we read in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. And do you remember what Peter said about being justified by the law? The, the, the Jews were trying to make the Gentiles justified by law. And guess what Peter says in Acts 15? He says, why are you putting on them a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Peter says justification by works, that's something I can't do. That's something David couldn't do. That's something Moses couldn't do. That's something Jacob couldn't do. That's something Isaac couldn't do. That's something Abraham couldn't do. None of our fathers have been able to bear that gospel and you want to give it to the Gentiles. The arrogance, the self-righteousness. David failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. I'll succeed. That's arrogance. That is self-righteousness. No, we want to be justified in the same humble way that all of the forefathers were justified. And that was what, verse 6, they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. When you, when you abandon faith alone, you have, without even knowing it, inherently become a self-righteous person. Works righteousness always leads to self-righteousness. Works righteousness always leads to self-righteousness. The humble position to say the only person who has ever fulfilled the law in a manner that pleases God is Jesus. Everyone else falls short. That's the gospel we want. That was Abraham's gospel. So we want that to be our gospel. So if you woke up this morning desiring to be a fool, there's your plan. Gullibility, inconsistency, wastefulness, and arrogance. But if you want to be a Christian that Paul would look at and be proud of, then do not be gullible. But be discerning and test everything according to the word. Be logically consistent. Work out our theology in a consistent manner. Finish the race. Do not quit on what Christ has started in you. And be humble. Accept the free grace of God offered in the gospel and abandon any thought that you can earn right standing with God.